You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We get a little bit of a uh, review of kind of what we just heard from some of the world's central bankers here. Again, inflation front and center at their ECB form in Centra, Portugal. I want to welcome Steve Matthews, U.S. economy reporter for Bloomberg News. Steve, thanks so much for joining us here. It seems to be the theme, obviously, uh, for central bankers around the world to try to rein in inflation, which is a global story, uh, while not pushing the world's economy into a recession. That's certainly been uh, the balancing act for Fed Chairman Jay Powell. What did you take away? Yeah, I, I thought it was really an interesting discussion. There was discussion about, you know, what the central banks got wrong, you know, how they might get things better in the future. Uh, Powell was very clear that inflation is the priority. He said, you know, getting it down will cause some pain, but the pain of not getting inflation down would be worse. Uh, he was asked about comments by uh, Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize-winning economist, New York Times columnist, uh, that you know the biggest risk to the economy would be the Fed overdoing it, and and certainly a lot of the folks predicting a recession right now, you know, fear that the Fed is going to do too much, you know, move too too far too fast, and he said no, he disagreed with that. The, the bigger risk is that uh, they don't do it enough and that, that they don't get inflation under control. So that, you know, that's clearly where their their head is. He, he also endorsed market expectations for rates. He cited the summary of economic projections of uh, a couple of weeks ago, which have the FOMC raising rates to 3.5% this year, around 4% next year. So, you know, it was definitely a, uh, a hawkish uh, uh, panel. A and interestingly, there was not any disagreement with the other central bankers, uh, I mean, from, from uh, the Bank of England, the ECB. Everybody is viewing inflation the same way as kind of a top yep. priority. And Steve, uh, Matt Miller's not here today, but not to worry, because we have Kriti Gupta in our studio. But, uh, and Kriti, thanks so much for joining us. But, you know, Steve, it's interesting here. It seems like, you know, he's, Fed Chairman Powell is kind of falling, or, you know, calling out that the U.S. consumer's in, in good shape here. It kind of suggesting to me that they're in good enough shape that they can endure 
the Fed being maybe as aggressive as they need to be. Do you think that's a message he's trying to get across? Yeah, I, I, I do think that. You know, there's been lots of concern about, you know, what is the shape of the consumer. He's saying uh, there's still pent-up savings out there. Uh, the labor department, the labor uh, market is extremely strong. Uh, you know, th that the idea is that growth will come down from the really overheated growth of, of the last year to something more sustainable. And uh, he's sounded not entirely confident that they can achieve a soft landing, but that's definitely the goal. And he says there's still an avenue out there. He said it was made more difficult, more challenging by the events of the last several um, several um, uh, months with the war in Ukraine, but is still very feasible. Steve, I want to circle back to what you said earlier about just how hawkish some of these central bankers are. I think the question in the markets is just how hawkish can they go and how much further do they have to go in this? And I think I'm going to bring my little chart of the day here, if you don't mind, Paul. Nice. Um, which was essentially the two-year yield. We're looking at the front end of the curve that's still in negative territory when you're looking at real rates, essentially inflation becoming so strong, whereas the rest of the yield curve is in positive territory. This is a part of the curve Chair Powell has actually brought up before in his in his June press conference, but I have to ask, is that perhaps the signal that they're waiting for? Chair Powell was asked specifically about the yield curve, and he said, we're not worried about the yield curve. That's not something we're focused on. Uh, he was very dismissive uh, about that. That is not going to be uh, the, the thing that really moves them. It, it was interesting. Uh, uh, Madame Lagarde said that, uh, Christine Lagarde said that monetary policy is more about art than science. And she did not get any pushback about that. But the point is that all of them see monetary policy is somewhat discretionary. So we don't really know exactly what the metric is that's going to change things. You know, if you get a bad ISM number, if you get a bad employment number, is that going to change things? Or is it all about inflation? We really don't have a good sense of the exact reaction function. And in fact, from what Lagarde was saying, they may not know. It, there's just some art to it. Steve, how surprised were you that Fed Chairman, Chow, uh, Fed Chairman Powell kind of said, hey, we blew this one. Uh, we, we kind of missed the whole inflation thing, the duration, the supply side impacts, all that kind of stuff. I, I mean, he was pretty clear there today. He, he was clear, although at the same time, he pointed out that if you went back a, a year ago to the forecast of all of the professional economists, all of the Wall Street economists, they all got it wrong too. So it's like he was ma making the point that yes, we got it wrong, but we weren't alone in getting it wrong. And and yeah, he but we made, pay this guy to get it right. <laughs> <laughs> that that's certainly true. We pay him. Taxpayers pay him. Uh, he he made the point that there have been several supply issues, the disruptions that, that have happened, just one on top of the other. You had the COVID disruptions, which they thought would ease quickly. They obviously are still haven't eased. You, you had on top of that a labor market a supply disruption with people not necessarily coming back into the labor market. And then you have the war, and, and they're all kind of piling on top of each other. And, and the one note of optimism that, that he pointed out was all of these things have kind of 
come and disrupted supply one after the other and, and threatened to do something with uh, inflation expectations. He said there's a possibility, you know, not necessarily their base case, but a possibility that this unwinds faster than expected. So you could have improvement in inflation faster than they expect. All right, Steve, good stuff. We always appreciate getting your perspective. Steve Matthews, U.S. economy reporter for uh, Bloomberg News. He's based down in Atlanta. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. All right, so we had an historic day on Capitol Hill in terms of the January 6th uh, testimony. A lot of folks I follow on Twitter, a lot of the uh, journalists I follow on Twitter were trying to put it in context, saying it was probably some of the most explosive testimony ever on Capitol Hill, and including uh, the Watergate testimony as well. So I need, we need some perspective, and for that we turn to Tim O'Brien, executive editor for Bloomberg Opinion. He's also an author uh, who wrote Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald. He did that in 2005. It's the definitive biography of Donald Trump. So uh, Mr. O'Brien has lots of uh, perspective here as it relates to all things uh, President Trump. Tim, what did you make of the testimony yesterday? And then I'd love to get your opinion does it even matter? I don't know that it well, so I think it was important testimony. My perspective, Paul, is that it's important testimony from a criminal exposure standpoint and whether or not the Justice Department is going to prosecute uh, Donald Trump. I, I'm not sure these hearings as a whole are going to change firmly committed Democrats and firmly committed Republicans in their view of Trump or their political allegiances. Um, I do think they will have an impact on on that middle swath of independents who are going to swing the votes in swing states. So it matters there. But I think overall, I think the purposes of these hearings are to lay down a fact pattern to convince the Justice Department that Donald Trump and, and a number of his advisors orchestrated a coup, a failed coup, and they have criminal liability because of that. And I think yesterday's hearing really established two crucial things. Trump knew that there was going to be violence on January 6th, and he went ahead with the rally anyway. And then once the rally began and there was evidence that people were arriving at the rally armed, Trump uh, tried to uh, convince the Secret Service to allow them to continue to enter the, the ellipse while they were armed. And then on top of it, wanted to join them at the Capitol to try to disrupt the Capitol building to disrupt the certification of the 2020 Electoral Count. That's pretty damning evidence from a from a criminal liability standpoint. Can you explain to our audience just a little bit about the significance of it going back into an emergency meeting? This is a witness, Cassidy Hutchinson, who had already given a lot of testimony. She'd already been deposed. Why now in terms of these new revelations? That's such a good question, Critty. I, I don't, you know, they had interviewed Cassidy Hutchinson previously. They had a lot of videotape of her testimony. They have shown snippets of that in the previous four hearings. Um, I, you know, it's been reported that there were security concerns around 
uh, her safety or possibly the hearing if it was delayed any longer. And that's why they decided to go ahead and have it now. Um, she switched attorneys. Her early attorney, I think, was, was advising her to not cooperate with the committee. She's clearly someone who believes she saw things that troubled her that needed to be made public and went forward with it, I think, not only, you know, sort of under the threat to her own reputation, but possibly to her personal safety. I think that's why they had an emergency hearing. But I don't know for sure. Tim, to the extent that former President Trump criminal liability may have increased yesterday or as a result of yesterday's testimony, do you believe the Department of Justice, you know, has a political will to pursue anything at this point? I'm just not sure what the, you know, environment is like in Washington these days. Well, I think it was a, it has been a mystery, Paul, as to whether or not the DOJ would go up the food chain. They've, you know, they've they've prosecuted hundreds of protesters, right. rioters who were at at the event, um, and there was this question: Well, would they go ahead and and start to prosecute people who orchestrated that event? And and now we see, I think, you know, they're they're clearly targeting John Eastman, for example, the advisor, Trump's lawyer who encouraged him to tell Mike Pence not to certify the election. They, they appear to be moving up the food chain. But I think um, Garland, I think, doesn't want it to be a politicized investigation. I think he's going to try to present this on the merits. And I think he's being deliberate about that if, if in fact, they keep going higher and higher on the food chain. And it's not clear to me yet whether or not they are. Can we talk about the 2024 potential campaign for President Trump? What are the implications here? Just walk us through it for someone, someone like me who's not familiar with the politics of this all. Well, Critty, you know, famously, when Trump was running in 2016, he said, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and nobody would care. And, and I think he's correct about that. There's, I think there's a, you know, 30 percent of the, of the Republican base that is firmly Trump and very MAGA, and they don't care what he does. Um, but we've seen, you know, in, in races this year in, in Georgia, for example, his leverage isn't absolute, and more moderate Republican candidates have successfully run and won and have, have beaten Trump-backed candidates. In other venues, Trump-backed candidates have won. I, don't, I, think, I think at the end of the day, in terms of 2024, one, it will depend on whether or not Trump decides to run. And even if he doesn't run, I think there are Trump-like candidates waiting in the wings to assume his mantle, I would point to people like Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, <clears throat> or Josh Hawley, senator from Missouri. So I don't think Trumpism is going to go away as a political force. It just may not be in the, in the person of Donald Trump. So, Tim, you know uh, former President Trump as well or better than any journalist out there, uh, resulting from, again, your work with the former president on your book. What do you think he really wants to do at this point of his life. Do you think he wants to get back into the cauldron of politics or is life at Mar-a-Lago pretty darn good at the moment? You know, he loves to golf. He loves to entertain himself. He's never been particularly serious about policy issues or really focusing on programmatic things that the presidency requires. I think he was surprised as anyone that he won. Uh, I don't think he's got a big appetite to get back into it again. On the other hand, one of the biggest things that drives him is being at the center of the center of attention and in and, and the media spotlight. And there's no spotlight like the presidency. I think it's going to be hard for him to stay away from that because he's almost addicted to attention. 
Very, very interesting. All right, Tim, thanks so much, uh, as always, for giving us a little bit of your time. Tim O'Brien, executive editor for Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, he's got a column out today, just kind of get some of his takeaways from what he observed yesterday from the uh, testimony on, on Capitol Hill. And I think the context of uh, his book, again, Trump Nation, the art of being the Donald, uh, and then being in a, a very lengthy legal uh, situation as a resulting from that book, uh, with the former president gives him some perspective there. So uh, very interesting to get his take. Interest rates, they are rising, uh, and that is tough for a lot of businesses, chief among them the real estate business. Uh, Lisa Nee, she's a partner and national tax leader for real estate practice at Eisner Advisory Group, joins us here. Lisa, I think about the commercial real estate business, and I think about cap rates and you know, borrowing rates and all that kind of stuff. But just give us a sense here after, you know, 15 years plus of really low rates, we're in a rising interest rate environment. What does that mean? What are you seeing out there in the real estate space? Yeah. Hi, good morning. Thank you. So it's going to raise the cost of capital. And so the, the capital that was really before going to the equity, the excess capital is now going to end up going to the debt providers. And so those spreads are going to be really hard to find. Um, and the investments going forward, um, if you're an investor, is going to be a little different when you're looking at it. And if you're a home buyer, um, you're also going to be looking at, at what you're at the future as well. And so what you really need to look at is the market that you're looking to be in, whether it's you're an investor or a home buyer, and what's going to fare well as where people are starting to move. And it's all about growth and where do we predict growth to go in spite of rising interest rates. So I have to ask, though, about this kind of demand and supply issue that you have, because it kind of seems like if you look at some of these other inflation indicators, uh, shipping rates, food prices, even inflation expectations, they're coming down a little bit. And I think for a lot of people, the assumption here was that perhaps housing prices would follow. But the shortage just seems so dire that even if you do have that reprieve, for example, and all these other kind of inflation drivers, the housing market may be exempt from that. Would you agree? I would agree that there's parts of it that, that are absolutely going to be exempt from that. And that's because in 07, that single family, uh, those homes, because of what happened in the economy then, they stopped building as many homes at that record pace. So for a single family uh, home, there were, there's always been less inventory on the market for since 2007. And so for that millennial now approaching into home buyer there's less product for them. And so we've actually seen a, a rise in single family rental market um, across the mountain states and across the Sun Belt to get those millennials into the homes and feeling that they can't really purchase them. They're, they're, they can't afford those homes because with less inventory becomes higher ho housing prices. And so we're going to continue to feel that in the multifamily market over the next few years because of the lack of inventory in both single family homes and in the multifamily space. And more importantly, uh, affordable housing. Hey, Lisa, on the commercial real estate side, you know, I work in yes. Midtown Manhattan. I see a <laughs> lot of real estate, commercial real estate on the ground floor of these office towers empty. I live in New Jersey. Every office park I go by has got a first, you know, lease sign out front with the gajillions of square feet. And I'm guessing that's because people are, nobody's going to the office anymore. How do you think about just you know, the office real estate space, the commercial real estate space? It just feels like it's not just interest rates, but this pandemic has changed the way we work and live. 
Yeah, it's funny. There's a survey out there saying that people are doing are saying one thing but doing another, where they're they're having a savings, they feel like their jobs are secure, they want to go shopping again, they want to experience vacation, but they still don't want to go back into the office. So right. they're willing to do everything but that. And, and the impact is going to take us a lot of years to really understand how that big picture is going to play on the commercial office space. Um, you know, people are going to be looking at the length of the commute, what your job type is, and they're really going to be puzzling together how for a long-term commercial business or commercial real estate owner, what's going to happen with that space, not just on the ground floor retail, but all the way up on, on the vertical. That The urban properties are probably going to get hit harder than the suburban properties. Um, and remember, the suburban qual- properties have a little bit lower qualities, and those rents have been pretty stagnant. Those are going to start to go up a little bit. And then we're going to see in the urban space figuring out how to reconfigure that space and what to do with it. And that's really the big question is, you know, you have to have great light. You need to have flowing air, an open floor pan, those amenities to attract that tenant. Um, but it's really going to be about where is that commercial office space? What's that market look like? What property type are you in? And uh, how attractive that is uh, to, to the tenants in the area. So she's going to have a factor. How sustainable is that is that yep. building going forward? So like in New York City here, like Hudson Yards, for example, which is, you know, like the whole west side of Manhattan got yep. redeveloped over the last decade or so. And they've just got yep. some incredible office buildings there. I understand that's doing really well, despite what we're seeing in the overall market. So is that just like an example of, boy, if you build really good stuff, people will still rent it? And again, it's the community in the area around it. It's, it's, it's all open air. There's open floor plan. There's tons of amenities in that area that are attracting people to that location. And so that's just testament to actually not just building, you know, re- renovating your building, but understanding the community where your building is and what that experience now, not just of your, not just of the residential tenant, but of the commercial tenant within that development. They want an experience when they're there as well. Um, and so that's really what the trends are going to be going forward is that, the experience as a commercial tenant as well as a residential tenant within the, within that space. We have about 30 seconds here. Very quickly, warehousing, is that in vogue at the moment? Warehousing is definitely in vogue. Um, it's still riding high with the, continu- the continued demand for space and storage. It's starting to slow in a couple of markets, actually, um, especially those with some extensive development. So investors are really watching that market. Uh, because as the, because in that space, the cap rates are really, really low, you're going to need a very, very high rent to make those deals work. So there's still demand for like last mile distribution, yep. self-storage, and like the tech logistics. But you still really need to look again at the space to see, you know, what is right. in that warehousing space and what they're looking for. Lisa, great, great stuff. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts there. Lisa Nee, partner, national tax leader for real estate practice at Eisner Advisory Group. Interest rates are going up. That's tough for the real estate space. Where are opportunities? What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. I don't know where you go this year. I'm sitting here approaching July 1st. We've got 
Equity indices, S&P down almost 20%. Let's call it a bear market or thereabouts. We got the, just the most brutal start ever to the year in the fixed income space. We just talked to our friends at TCW about that. I don't know where you go here. So I'm going to turn to professional Tracy McMillian, head of global asset allocation strategy uh, at Wells Fargo. Tracy, where do you allocate assets on a global basis given the start of the year we've had so far and given maybe some of the expectations for the rest of the year? Yeah, yeah, it's been a really tough start to this year for investors. Um, as you mentioned, you know, equity markets are off to a, a, a really terrible start. Fixed income markets are, are also down significantly, uh, down double digits, which is highly unusual for fixed income markets. So what we are uh, telling investors in in the face of, you know, this, this difficult start is that um, First of all, that patience is important and diversification is also still important, um, but that uh, this is a period where markets are likely to remain fragile. So um, long-term investors should use diversification, use rebalancing to manage risk. Um, they should go up in quality, we believe, in both fixed income and in equity. So that for us means moving away from things like uh, small caps and into large and mid caps in the U.S., moving towards U.S. assets over international assets. And moving up in quality and fixed income, too, to uh, away from things like high yield towards investment-grade assets in, in fixed income. Commodities is another area where diversification has really helped investors this year, having a, an allocation to commodities and having an allocation to alternative investments like hedge funds can be helpful for those investors um, for whom that's appropriate. Tracy, I'm so glad you mentioned the commodities picture because it feels like that is the go-to macro hedge at the moment. But I have to ask, if you're a commodity trader, you know that those are some extremely volatile markets and participation has actually been coming down when you look at open interest because some people just don't want to deal with that kind of volatility. You can lose very big. So I have to ask, just because that's a trade that's worked in the last two years, let's say from April 2020 onwards, does that necessarily mean it's a trade that's going to work when you're still talking about recession? Yeah, that's that's a great question, Creedy, because um, when you enter a recession, essentially what's happening, as, as all of our listeners know, is that um, we're seeing a contraction in growth. And so you, you, if you're seeing a contraction in growth, then you would expect um, less demand for commodities. And so our commodities price is going to remain high and continue to move higher. Uh, we believe they will. And the reason why we think they will, even though we are entering this period where we, we do foresee a recession is because for years we have really neglected the infrastructure for energy um, because there are geopolitical events um, that we think will probably persist through the winter and continue to limit supply. And but I guess that, you know, kind of the, the big reason is because we think we are also in a commodities bull super cycle. So we think that this is a multi-year cycle where commodities will continue to move higher. Um, you know, not a straight line up, but will continue to trend upward. So 
Tracy, I mean, we're going to have earnings season kick off in a couple of weeks here, led by uh, the big banks here, which will call into question, you know, kind of obviously inflation impacts on margins and profitability. What are you looking for for this earnings uh, season here? What are you most attuned to? Yeah, what, what we're really looking for here is forward guidance on input prices, um, employment costs. Um, and how supply chains are um, remedying themselves. Uh, you know, so we're going to be looking for that guidance uh, from the management teams. And we do expect to see um, some modest margin compression this time. Um, and we also think that um, earnings expectations from the bottoms-up analysts are probably too high and that they're going to be following this forward guidance from management. So they'll follow management. And actually, that could be the next shoe to drop as we go through this earnings season. Um, analysts are probably going to have to revise down their Q3 and Q4 earnings expectations. And you know that could put and into this rally that we've seen over the past few days. But Tracy, to what extent is that getting priced in right now? Because it feels like for the last year, we've been hearing these warnings about macroeconomic risk, about recessionary risk. I mean, big tech, for example, has been warning about a slowdown, I'd argue, since the first quarter of 2020. To what extent has the market already digested those changes? So a lot of it is in the markets, we think. A lot of the the bad news has already been absorbed. But what we think markets might be missing here is that uh, that they may be anticipating that the Fed will not uh, stick to its resolve, um, even you know even in the face of a a, a recession. A recessionary period. So we think that the Fed is going to continue to fight inflation. Um, we don't think they will necessarily pause rate hikes, even if we do enter a period of, of negative growth. And we think that markets are probably missing that aspect. Um, they, they may be to some extent still relying on that Fed put. And we, we just think that investors do need to be cautious here. We could see another lag down. Why can't I just go out and buy these big tech stocks, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft? You know, I, I hear from the kids that this intraweb thing is going to be a big thing going forward. Can I just do that? That's worked so well for me over the last 15 or 20 years. It has worked really well for 15 to 20 years. Um, and that's probably why we got to the point where a lot of those companies were so richly valued. And they were richly valued, remember, in an environment where um, interest rates were very low. So we could discount that growth out um, into the future at very, very low discount rates, which made higher prices, higher valuations plausible. Uh, if we are uh, headed into a period here, which we believe we are, where yep. we're going to see higher inflation, higher rates, then we're, we'd have to reset that discount rate. Um, we do like information technology, and we do think that um, here at these levels, there are some buying opportunities. But you know, we would not expect the kind of returns that we've seen over yep. the last decade. All right. Great, great stuff. As always, Tracy McMillian, head of global asset allocation strategy uh, at Wells Fargo. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.